Our reading is from Micah chapter 6, beginning at the first verse. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks, Thanks be to God. In many and various ways God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you're a kid and you are assigned chores to do around the house, whatever they might be, you inevitably start to think of those chores as simply an obstacle to your freedom. So they're the thing that stands in the way between you getting to do what you want and you having to do other things. They're what gets in the way. So you have to clean your room before you can go and play. You have to finish your dinner before you can leave the table. You have to eat all of your veggies before you get dessert. All of those kinds of chores, all of those things that you must do as a kid, they feel like mere obstacles. They're just the thing that stands in the way, your homework. You have to get your homework done before you can enjoy yourself, before you can get to the weekend. That goes on, I think, that sort of feeling of life being full of obstacles. That goes on into adulthood as well. So maybe we don't have so many things given to us like chores from above from our parents anymore but there are lots of things that feel like just simple obstacles to getting on with the rest of life to getting on with the things that we want to do so nobody enjoys paying their taxes nobody enjoys renewing their driver's license you have to do it you have to do it you have to go and stand in line at the DMV you got to do it and that is what stands in the way that gets between you and doing the things that you want to do and when it comes to these kinds of chores, the things that we think of as just sort of in the way, we want to get them out of the way as fast as possible so we can get on with life, so we can get to the things that we want to do. When we are confronted with those things, we so often try to do the minimum, the bare minimum, right? You're just doing the least possible to get by. You're trying to do whatever it takes just to satisfy, just to eke past the standards that are set for you. So you're thinking about whoever it is that gave you this chore when you're a kid. You're like, what, is, what does dad really want from me right here? What's the least that I have to do in order to be done with this project? Do 
Do I have to eat all of the vegetables on my plate or just have to eat the big ones? Do I have to eat the ones that stand out? Do I have to eat all of my vegetables and drink my milk or can I get away with just leaving a little bit at the bottom of the glass? As a kid, you're always thinking, what's the least I can do? And as an adult, as well. It's not just that we're lazy, but that we understand that some things are really not worth it. Some things are just an obstacle to the rest of life. Some things are just in the way. And how we think about those things is really telling because it's related to how the world thinks about God. The world thinks about God as an obstacle. He's just in the way. He's what stands between us, humans, and whatever it is that we want to do. And whether the world thinks of God on high, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and the earth, or whether the world worships something else, something like, say, money or health, the question is always, what do I just have to do in order to get by? How do I satisfy this God? That's our, our natural religion. That's what we believe by nature. That there's someone out there, that there's some power above us that is putting an obstacle in front of us, and we need to get through that obstacle so we can get on with life, so we can get to the things that we want to do. This is how it is with money. This is why people work hard. This is why people earn a paycheck so often. It's just so that they can have the things that they want, so they can do the things they want. And you can hear that kind of thinking. If only I had more money, if only I could get just a little bit more out of this God, if only I could satisfy him a little bit more and he rewards me just a little bit more, then finally I could have what I want. You do your service, you do your time, with as little effort as possible, and then you get on with your life. That's the way the world so often thinks about God, and that is what is at stake here in our lesson from Micah. God has brought a charge against the people of Israel. Now, up to this point, he's already told them how things are going to go. There's going to be a nation that comes in and drives them out and carries them off into exile. But he's going to do that so that he can rescue them, so that he can be their salvation, so that he can redeem them from a land that is not their own. But the way that he does it is strange and bizarre. It's not by the strength of his might. It's not by power. It's not by a sheer sign of force. But it is this lowly way. Oh, you Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. God works in surprising ways. And one of the reasons why he does that is because he is not like any other god. He is not like the gods of the nations. He's not like money. He's not like the idols that we build in our hearts. He's completely different. So he needs to teach us how to think of him differently. He asks his people, he says, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Why have I made you so bitter towards me? What have I done? What have I withheld from you? Where was my neglect? Don't you see, he says, don't you see how I brought you up out of the land of Egypt? I rescued you from the hand of Pharaoh. I saved you from all of your enemies. I sent you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And even when you weren't paying attention, I rescued you from the hand of your enemies, from the Moabites who were plotting against you. God says, I saved you at every point along the way. What have I done to make you think that I'm not for you, but I'm against you? What have I done to make you think that I'm just like every other God and that you should offer me sacrifices in order to make me happy? That you have something to give to me that I want from you. And that if only you would give it to me, I would finally get out of your way. What have I done to you? God asks. The people respond rhetorically in this lesson from Micah. This is what they ask. This is what Micah puts into their mouths. With what shall I come before the Lord? 
and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with burnt offerings? Is that what God wants? Does he want burnt offerings? Does he want calves that are a year old? Maybe a thousand rams. Would a thousand cut it? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Or what about my firstborn child? Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is how the people thought of God. It's how we all think of God by nature. Let me find a way to satisfy him and get him out of my way. He's standing between me and everything that I want to do. Now, that's, it's so important to know that that's what's hidden inside our hearts because this is one of God's chief objects in teaching us and disciplining us is to change that picture of him. That's not how he is. He doesn't care about all those sacrifices. He would despair if you offered your firstborn child to him. It's not what he wants. He has told you, O oh man, he has told you what is good, to do justice and to love kindness, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The problem with thinking of God in the way that the world does, thinking of him as just sort of an obstacle to get through, there's two problems, really. The first is that it's treating God as just sort of a tool. Right? He, in fact, if that's how you think of God, look, he's just like, he's like the security guard at the club and I have to pay him, I have to bribe him in order to get into the club, to get to where I want to go. If he's just somebody you have to bribe or pay off, then he's not really God. In fact, who's God in that scenario? But me. I'm determining where I want to go and what is good. You're treating God as a tool. The people of Israel thought of God as just a vending machine. If they put in the right amount of cash and press the right buttons, they get out what they want. That's the first problem with thinking of God that way. The second problem is even more grievous. If we think of God as just an obstacle between us and where we want to go and what we want to do, we have neglected the fact that what we want to do and where we want to go is nowhere good at all. God explains to the people that he is upset with them. He's disturbed by them. He's grieved in his heart because they have perverted these basic good things like justice. He says you're weighing with unbalanced scales. You're cheating your neighbors. You're not treating people fairly. You're denying the widows and the orphans what is due to them. You don't care. You don't love. That's what our hearts seek all on their own. If we were just trying to get around God so we can get where we want to go, that's exactly where we would go, to nowhere good at all, in straight into sin, straight into evil, straight into wickedness. If God were to just step out of the way, as though we bribed him or paid him off, we would wind up straight in hell, because that is where we want to go by nature. But none of this is who God is. That's not who he is whatsoever. Pay attention to what he asks of the people, what he asks of you. It's not a list of commands. It's not a list of demands to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk with humility before God. To do justice is simply making sure that you're not taking things that don't belong to you. It's simply making sure that everyone has the blessings from God that he gives to them. That you're not coveting or lusting after things which are not yours, but that you're receiving every good thing from God. That's how justice is overturned, when people grasp at things that don't belong to them. That's what the commandments are all about. They're all about protecting the things that God has given to his people. Justice is receiving your due, receiving your blessings from God and not trying to take someone else's. Loving mercy is recognizing that among the gifts God has given you is an opportunity to help those who are in need, to be as God to them, to show his blessings and his mercy to everyone around you. 
to love mercy, not to do it grudgingly, not to think, oh, here's another person who needs my help, but to gladly and willingly pour out the same kind of love that has been poured out on you. None of which is possible, none of that is possible, doing justice or loving mercy. Neither of those things is possible if you do not have humility or walk with God, to walk in humility with God, to understand who you are and who he is, that he is the one who created you and gave you every good thing out of his fatherly divine goodness and mercy, not because you deserved it, not because you had anything good going for you, but simply because he loves you. That's what makes for humility, to recognize how small we are and how big God is and yet how great he treats us. To recognize how little we deserve and how much glory he deserves and then to see how he heaps blessings on us. That's what it is to walk in humility before God. But pay attention to this. God God says, this is what I'm asking of you people. Not because these are things that I need. Not because I need you to do justice. God can do justice on his own. (laughs) Not because I need you to show mercy. I can show mercy on my own. Not because I need you to be humble for my sake. I can make you humble. Why does God ask these things of his people? It's for their sake. It's for your sake. When God teaches you to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him, it's for your sake. It's because he loves you. It's because he's not some obstacle to get around, but because he is your life. Your life is not beyond him or beside him or somewhere apart from him, but it is in him and with him. And when you do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, you have life with him. Because above all else, you receive from him every blessing. Most importantly, the forgiveness of sins. You receive from him the cleansing from wickedness, the cleansing from selfishness, the cleansing from all of those idols that you've tried to serve and that have failed you, cleansing from every last one of them. That's what you receive from God. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your self-made service. He doesn't want you to give him anything. He wants to give it all to you. It's hard because by nature, we think of everything in this way. I'm going to put something into it and I'm going to get something out of it. But God works exactly the opposite. He is, in fact, inviting us to think of him in a completely different way. What a marvel it is. Think about how strange and beautiful it is that God invites us to call him Father. How should it be that The creator of the heavens and the earth is our father. That he loves us the way a father loves us. What does a dad want from his kids? Yeah, I want you to do the chores. I want you to do the chores whether you like it or not. But most of all, above all else, I want you to learn to love doing what is good. That the chores that you're given are not just arbitrary. They're not just there to make you do things, to make you hop when I say hop, or to make you ask how high when I tell you to jump, but it's because doing good things is good for you. That's how it is for God. Why does he ask you to do good? To be just and merciful and humble. It's because it's good for you. He invites you to call him Father. That's something that no other God in the world could do. Money can't do that. The gods of your flesh cannot do that. Nothing else that you might serve in this world loves you the way your Father does. That's what's so beautiful about Christmas. We return to it time and again because when Jesus is born and laid in a manger, you see in such vivid detail how different God is from every other power in this world. How utterly contrary and scandalous it is that God should be made so small and so little and so humble and so weak 
for you. He doesn't stay there in the manger. He grows up and he dies for you. His humility increases to the point where he hands himself over to you. What does God want from you? Not that you give him anything, but that he give himself entirely to you. So do not stop receiving from God all these good things. Do not think you have something that he needs or something that he wants from you. Instead, hear and believe that he wants to give you blessings eternal. Put your trust in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.